Frogs. 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 It's February 2023. And do you know what February means around these here parts? Frogs. It means frogs. Um, it means in this part of the world, I'm in southern England, for my entire life, around about Valentine's Day, so that's February 14th, that is the time when the one frog species that we have here, using frog in the broadest possible sense of the term, for all the neurons, um, that's when they start to appear in ponds. They make their way to ponds, they pair up, and they spawn. And uh, sometimes there can be spawn in late January, but generally, like by the second or third week of February, this mass spawning event here in southern England is done. It, it concerns Rana temporaria, the common frog or grass frog, as it's known. And uh, I have built a couple of ponds in my front garden. And as you know, if you follow me on social media, um, over the years, I have kept tabs on like how many frogs we have and whether they spawn and what happens to the spawn. And year on year, we moved here in about 2006. Year on year, uh, the number of, for a long time, it was like one or zero clutches of spawn per year until 2019 when we had two. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, two clutches. <laughs> 100% increase. Yeah, <laughs> doubled their numbers. And then um, in uh, 2020 was one again. 2021, there were like four. 2022, there were seven clutches. So I'm like, oh, this is a good sign. What's going to happen next year? 2023, at least 21 clutches spawn. So it's a... Uh, you know, massive, an exponential increase in that terms of numbers of individual frogs and numbers of clutches. In terms of individual frogs, we've gone from <clears throat> only ever saw one for the longest time. So for more than 10 years, only saw one frog. But I'm guessing there were at least two, given that they were <laughs> producing spawn. Frogs are not parthenogenetic. They can't self-fertilize, to my knowledge. Um, but yeah. Although like, you do have the evidence. <laughs> only, only ever saw only one ever saw or none so maybe it was magic sport dropped in mm, mm. um or just self uh what's that thing where things self uh, the the uh, phenomenon where people used to think that living organisms just generated out of mud and slime and stuff yeah uh, well, um, yeah what, whatever that's i'm sorry that's called really... a spontaneous generation or something spontaneous like that. generation that's exactly yeah. what it's called yeah yeah but the this year there were over 50 frogs so the numbers of individuals that we have in the area and the numbers of little baby frogs that have obviously matured and are recruited into the breeding population. Um, massive success. And um, I generated a graph on this today just to sort of 
demonstrate what I already knew, the fact that it's shaped, shaped like this massive increase. Um, really impressive and really happy with it. I put this down to our garden being a total chaotic mess. It, mm. it is. We deliberately, uh, I deliberately, <laughs> let the garden go wild. So I haven't mown the lawn for about 10 years now. I do cut the hedges because they're getting really, really high. Yeah, it is deliberate. It's deliberately messy. I've like kept the hedges like... There's loads of leaf litter and stuff underneath them. There's a cover. There's two ponds and there's lumpy, bumpy substrate and loads of places for frogs. Now, in keeping with what I've said I'm previously... I'm not lazy. It's rewilding. <laughs> That's where I was going with this. In view of what we've said before about rewilding, the concern for me is... So this year, I was honestly worried that when I start to see the frogs show up in the ponds... Given the way things are going with the numbers of arthropods, will a lot of the frogs look in poor condition? Will they be obviously starving and you know, skinny and stuff? And no, they look okay. You do see horrible things like sort of missing limbs and sort of like organs hanging out their bodies, thanks to the efforts of cats, pet cats. Really not a fan of free roaming pet cats, uh, which which obviously kill and eat some of our frogs and maim them while they're still alive. We literally had like a frog with its like heart hanging out of its body, <laughs> still alive, thanks to thanks to next door's cat. But um, the frogs are seemingly getting enough um, yeah, invertebrate prey. So in maintaining a frog friendly environment, basically, I'm thinking, what kind of uh, biological clutter should there be to help? You know, look like uh, soil invertebrates you know like springtails and uh, little soil mites and worms and all these things yeah so that the garden is kind of constructed <laughs> air quotes um with that with that in mind and i would say that yeah oh my god uh over over 21 clutches of spawn this year it's just like unbelievable I'm really happy with it um, we live in a time when, due to the global climate crisis, very cold weather bands from the Arctic now increasingly get pushed out of the Arctic and go further south than they are, air quotes, supposed to. So there's concern that even as late as March, we might get way below freezing temperatures um, in, here in southern England, where it generally doesn't get very cold. It doesn't get below freezing very often. And if that does happen all the spawn and all the tadpoles and everything, they'll all die, they'll all get frozen to death. So um, I'm hoping that doesn't happen. Um, if it does happen, last night was supposed to be minus one, so I was worried, like, should I go and do something? I didn't, I was too lazy. But um, I am thinking about putting, like, a tarp over the shallow, because frogs, these frogs, they lay their spawn in the shallowest end of the pond, as in, like, water less than five centimetres deep. That's what they want. They want their spawn to be right at the surface, obviously, for maximum... Uh, sun on the eggs um but yeah that also means they're super vulnerable to to freezing so i've got a tarp ready to cover it and I'm, i've also been wondering about bringing some of it inside i don't want to do that because i don't have space to set up a tank and everything i mean my insane solution might be to actually run some heating out there i don't have the means to do that i'm not going to go and buy an outdoor heater no no, no it wouldn't be an outdoor heater um, I would probably put a hot water pipe because <laughs> they're really easy to lay. Right, um, sure they are. Yeah, no, they are. They, I could show you how to do it. You do it in five minutes. Real easy. Really? Yeah. 
Yeah, you get this snap together plastic stuff to get these days. It's so simple. Mm -hmm. um, although I don't know how you'd keep it going. Hmm. I'd think about that a bit, but then just run it under the pond, you see. Put it inside it. I can't run it under the pond. The, the pond is incorporated into the landscape. It's not like a yeah. sort of thing you can lift out of the ground. No, so put a little trench and put the put the plastic pipe in the ground. Yeah. It'll warm the ground up. It's, it's not it's not easy to do. It is. Okay, so what, but the only uh, problem is would be whether it um but you can't put stuff underneath a pond. Like it's not it's not, you can't get to the underneath of it. Because like like uh, the the pond isn't a it's not like there's an edge to the pond that separates it from the land. The mm. like part uh, what makes a pond good for animals like amphibians is it's actually got to have like a totally blurred boundary between the land and the pond. I can't really explain this very well with just words. I, I think I you're misunderstanding what I'm suggesting because it Evidently. doesn't matter. It doesn't. It doesn't make any difference. Well, I can't get underneath the pond. I can't like dig underneath it. But you can go but... into the pond, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's an interesting idea. But I, I, I well, get... I guess what I'm saying is that if you were worried, you don't have to worry about it. Um, if you could find a way of automating it. I'd do this. I don't think you should do this, but I, I would definitely <laughs> think about it. Because okay. I don't think it's nearly as complicated as, as you'd think. And it would mean that you don't have to worry about running out there with a tarp or bringing them inside, which is, <laughs> yeah, that's a lot more work, isn't it? Well, actually, technically, it's not. Number one, fish tank. Number two, landscape the fish tank so that it's suitable for that kind of frog. Number three, go out there with like a little bowl or something and get a clump of spawn and put it in the boat and number four put it in the fish tank so long as it's in shallow water so long as it's warm what about putting and... a fish tank heater in the in the pond like we do have a fish tank heater which obviously is in use in the tropical fish tank that we've got but practical things like so really simple practical things like getting an electric cable out to the pond is not something i can do i don't have like outdoor ex... wiring that i can just like Chuck out no, in the no, garden. No. Yeah, all right. So, a nice idea. Your heart's in the right place, I guess. But, but you um, don't know how to do enough DIY to make it happen. Utterly not. That's that's why I. <laughs> no, but I actually, yeah, I don't know. Parents I think and you, Well, it depends whether you want to, you've got any doors or windows you could leave open a crack to run an extension cable out, I guess. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. No. Okay, so. Yeah. Also, it is heating the outside, which is a bit of a crazy um, yeah, in idea these times in the world. of like, yeah, yeah, financial crisis, you know, cost of living crisis. Like, yeah, people's people's heating bills going up by sort of fivefold and stuff. But will no one think of the frogs? Will no one think of the frogs? Well, <laughs> I certainly. If you're cold, they're cold. <laughs> Bring them inside. Animals that can literally tolerate being frozen solid. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm really happy with this. I, I've uh, obviously put, I wouldn't say a lot of work into it. It's digging ponds and laying ponds. Is that a lot of work? I mean, letting your garden go to wildlife, I suppose, could be considered a lot of work. But but whatever, I'm really happy that... Um, I think, it's, is... I think it's, it's a great work saver from what it <laughs> sounds like to me. It's, it's paid off. It's paid off. And you're not, you're not supposed, you're told to not these days, to not transfer spawn or tadpoles even, from one pond to another one, because one of the reasons for the decline of some amphibian species in the UK, and particularly the common frog, has been the spread of viruses, which has been responsible within recent decades for massive die-offs 
of of this species come frog but yeah that's an issue in ponds where there are frogs that are going to get diseases and number one it assumes that the diseases are present in the population that you're you know source population and the places okay so backtrack a little bit if i've now got this many clutches of spawn and therefore hopefully you know huge numbers of tadpoles once they actually start to mature and get free of the spawn then i'm thinking i'm gonna like start reintroducing like restocking various ponds around these here parts with taddies and mm-hmm. yeah I'm, I'm saying you're told that's a bad idea but all the places I'm thinking of, and I'm thinking of like, you know, garden ponds. I'm not talking about lakes or anything. I'm talking about tiny garden ponds with friends and family. They don't have frogs at all. And they haven't had for decades because all the frogs died off there or were killed off there, again, by cats. So sh- I'm thinking, should I like start, you know, 30 tadpoles at a time? Uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes. I actually tried this last year with disastrous results because um, the game of uh, animals like this, if a single clutch of spawn is like, I don't know, sort of more than 100 um, uh, embryos, well, that's because nearly all of them are going to die. It's a classic R strategy reproduction. You have a huge number of babies, infant mortality is high, a tiny number persist adulthood. And with frogs of this sort producing like, you know, if a small garden pond has got over 20 clutches, so that's thousands, that's potentially thousands of tadpoles, well, there's going to be some years where all of them die. Literally all of them die. Not one makes it to adulthood. And then there's going to be others where there's going to be you know, hundreds. Hundreds will will survive. So um, where am I going with this? Uh, I can't remember. But um, Well, it was disastrous. You didn't work. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They all died. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm upset. I'm like, boohoo, you know, I, tr- I I wanted those little tadpoles to make it. They didn't. They all, they all died like during transit even, or sometimes they died mm. in the pond. But it's like, that's actually normal. It's uh, the the amount of death there is in this kind of, uh, this strategy. It's a good job these animals aren't like self-aware and sentient and stuff. Because <laughs> as far as we know. As far as we know, God, another... Oh dear, actually no, start thinking about how many humans have died. Maybe that's not a good analogy at all. I'll stop there. But um um where are, so a couple of like random things about frogs that sort of using that as a springboard. Frogs are obviously globally distributed, uh, with the exception of you know, they're not in Antarctica these days, or in the, the frozen north, once you get oh, they are in the Arctic Circle, but they're not in obviously, you know, kind of icy Arctic places. Um, well, they're not in the Arctic, but they're in the Arctic Circle of Scandinavia. How many frog species do you reckon there are worldwide right now? I love asking you these questions because you always get them completely wrong. I don't get them completely wrong, Darren. 4,000. Is about half of the correct number. So uh, it's currently, and bear in mind, we are in an age where I've written about Cetetopozoology, um, year on year, the number of recognised new frog species is, you know, massively increasing year on year. Um, partly because there's more people doing the um, right kind of detailed systematic uh, sampling work using genetics as well as morphology that you need to sort this out. There's currently 
7,560-ish as of literally this month. Um, they are the, the bulk of amphibians are frogs because in total it's currently, I think, about uh, eight and a half thousand living species. There's obviously only a couple of hundred salamanders and a couple of hundred um, Cecilians. So, yeah, um, globally distributed and a lot of them and like economically important. Loads of people eat frogs, probably too many eat frogs. So, in fact, the demand for frogs legs in some parts of the world is causing damage to wild frog populations. See, this is another thing that's like stupid about the world. Think of everything I've just said about how easy, air quotes, it is in short in a relatively short time to build up massive numbers in captivity and you've probably seen i certainly have these like frog farms they have in like tropical asia where they have like perfect froggy breeding habitat and then perfect froggy raising like pens and the ground is covered in thousands 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 and those frogs are all killed and eaten by east asian people so i'm like if you've got an animal that's that fecund and that easy to raise, well then why on earth would you do you need to do anything that affects wild populations? Once you've got like if you if you need them as a resource, if lots of people eat frogs, then we should be doing stuff that has no impact on wild ones at all. But we do. People still collect them from the wild in many parts of the world, including including in um continental Europe. Uh, it does I wonder whether it's sort of like uh as an awkward in-betweeny it's it's not really very profitable to open a frog farm somewhere but enough people are eating them to you know you know what i'm saying like there's this un yes but no because it's also incredibly lucrative frogs legs are uh expensive to yeah because uh, they're not farmed right but the, the, the demand is strong yeah. but not very like it's not like well they're not really Maybe they're not enough of a mass market thing, but yeah, mm. I mean, because otherwise, mm. why not? Yeah, why not uh, mm. start a farm? But then maybe that it's just not that profitable because yeah, you can lessen the price, but you're not the demand's not going to go that up that high. Yeah, because not that many people want to eat frogs' legs. Now I don't. Period. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't. Uh, I don't really know what I'm talking about here. I haven't looked into this in in any. Yeah, we're talking about depth. economics, and we've no idea. Yeah. <laughs> But, well, I'll say that one thing that often crops up in these kinds of discussions is the greatest enemy to progress in the natural world is progress in the right way, not progress in the capitalist sense, is um, tradition. Because lots of people all around the world um, think that in order to eat something that's good, you need to eat the, the version from the wild. And if you do eat a farmed or captive one, that's just not as good. You are getting like a, I don't know, it's, it is, <sighs> partly you can understand that it's true because you can understand that a thing that's been raised in the wild has been eaten wild food. You can make an argument that that's like, that's a healthier, bigger one, wilder one than one that's led a sort of like factory, factory farmed, you know, sort of, you know, life of eating processed chicken nuggets in captivity. <laughs> but... <laughs> It's also, on the one hand, there is that, but on the other hand, there's also the sort of like mystical idea that, oh, the wild hog is a thousand times more delicious than the domestic hog. 
wait a minute, even though the wild hog has like starved and produced litters of babies throughout its life and has eaten road scraps, whereas the domestic one has been injected with loads of stuff to make it like perfectly uh, sort of meat producing machine. Some people do like that flavor though, right? They like the wild animal gamey um, flavor. It's definitely not like it's been bred out of a lot of domestic meats. And when you eat something like that, you're like, ooh. It's definitely an acquired <laughs> taste. Um, sorry, sorry, vegans listening to this. Um, yeah, do, um, do you think that do you think that applies to frogs? It's like mm, I can tell this one's been snacking on maggots, whereas I, this I, one I, was... I doubt it, but it seems vaguely plausible. Um, mm. But I, yeah, I, I doubt it. Um, yeah, yeah. I guess there's also a bit of an ethical argument in terms of animal welfare, for example, that a lot of people this, are this frog had a, this, yeah industrial sort of farming techniques of animals and if you eat a wild one that hasn't happened it's led a normal wild life i have argued several times with people about um yeah but this pig lived a wild life and it was happy and this pig lived its life in a little tiny cage and it was basically a slave and miserable so therefore you should have eat you should eat the what it's more correct to eat the wild one because it had like a, a better quality of life and I don't know, there's various tangents, various... Well, no, I think it's just competing morals there, actually. So, yeah, it's more efficient to farm these animals. But I think most people would agree that it's... If you're going to eat meat, um, eating wild animals does feel like a less morally problematic thing mm, yeah. in terms of animal welfare, not in yeah. terms of environmental impact. yeah. So to bring this back to frogs, I mean, do you think that anybody, certainly in this part of the world, in Europe, if people are eating frogs, are they doing so as a matter of like survival? Like, I need to get my five frogs a day or my family's (laughs) going to starve. I don't think so. I think it's like restaurant um, kind of luxury food. So I would even question why people need to eat frogs legs. It's a, yeah. But why do we need to eat any meat at all? Yeah, just just. So I don't think that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, okay. I think the <laughs> argument there is that we should be farming them. If we're going to be eating them, we should be farming them rather than impacting wild populations. So uh... <laughs> seems obvious. If if frog farms are can be done and are successful, then why are we not doing this? Yes, um, we've right. So we've veered massively off track here from the points I wanted to get through. Oh, okay. So, Sorry. You yeah, should have listed your points because then I'll know because I'll keep you on track. It's not, it's not your fault. I thought that was interesting. Um, and so before we just get back to something else more froggy themed, this breeding biology thing. So if you're like European, and I think for a lot of American people as well, particularly North Americans, if you think of frogs and spawning, then you think of this like, you know, spring has sprung and the croaking of frogs in the pool and the frogs team up at the engage in amplexus the males grab the females around the chest and then they spawn and spawn and spawn and spawns are like the spawn is a clump of jelly filled things jelly covered things and it's like about a hundred or more um and a pond can be full of spawn like thousands of thousands of clutches of spawn and we sort of think of that as like your standard sort of default frog state um, and the numbers, like I said, the numbers, the numbers are just ridiculous. I, I remember for common toads and some other toad, larger toad species, it's like a single female can produce like 1,000, I said 1,500 eggs in a single clutch, right? So ridiculous numbers. But where I'm going with this is 
that style of breeding is highly specialized and i don't want to say unusual because there's lots of species hundreds of species that do it but it's not the sort of default or original or ancestral mode of reproduction for anurans the frog and toad group and in all the groups of frogs that produce these like, massive clutches the archaic kind of like nearer the base of the tree species um have a very different strategy they produce tiny clutches of eggs like less than 10 in tiny little habitats like little sort of like uh, bowls in trees and little um hollows on the forest floor and stuff and those tadpoles don't swim free and eat stuff from the environment which is again typical for the mass spawner ones that we were started with instead they are fed by they're, they're given uh, food of some kind by the mother she like produces extra eggs they can eat or they've got a, a big yolk sack that lasts them for a long time um that sort of thing so it's, it, it's interesting it's like repeatedly frogs have gone from this um oh is it called endotrophic method of uh like looking after the tadpoles with like basically high maternal investment to this ectotrophic one they're feeding on the environment with no parental investment and uh yeah that's happened re repeatedly so i think i think that's interesting sort of takes us away from so it has happened repeatedly then we sort of like yeah it's, uh comes up it's independently derived in several yeah frog lineages it's funny yes yes yeah. so in like so that again the frogs we've got here in western europe they're mostly ranids so like the common frog i'm talking about rana temporary that's a ranid frog and the standard toad we've got here bufo bufo is a bufonid a true toad and both of those groups which are not at all close on the family tree they're at different ends of the neobatrachian frog family tree frog clade the neobatrachian clade which is the youngest major clade within frogs um and uh, 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 ancestral um early diverging members of both those groups ranids and bufonids were both small clutch laying tropical species mm. and they've independently evolved um into these um ectotrophic uh mass spawning ones and there's some really interesting work and i've written a whole series about this on tetrapods orgy back in the day actually that um, this style of reproduction goes hand in hand with a whole list of other adaptations that are to do with these kinds of anurans, true toads, bufonid toads, are the best example. Global, they're basically perfect global colonizers. Like they are, um, they're really mobile, as in like they're relatively big animals and they can cover like a great distance for a small animal and they can use an environment uh, without like i say without high maternal investment like they can have if they're lucky they can have like massive recruitment of numerous um juveniles into the population and they all have really interesting anti-predator adaptations so toads are obviously highly toxic ranids are obviously super great leapers which means they're better at escaping um predators than lots of other kinds of neurons are so uh so yeah there's there's a there's like these re repeatedly evolved syndromes um within um anurans that um, are part of this part of the story of their success of course the early diverging members in both of those clades and in many other anurans clades as well are these small forest dwelling cryptic animals but some of them of course are also highly toxic and another story in anurans is the evolution of um the sequestering of toxins from invertebrate prey and how they've they're able to be 
like insanely toxic like <laughs> um the obviously the most famous example the poison dart frogs dendrobateids of um the american tropics which some of which are so toxic they're like you know I'm, we, we've all heard this stuff if you touch one of them touch one you could die <laughs> from touching it <clears throat> although there are these concerns about them becoming less toxic in the modern age, I think we might, might have covered this before, or I've written about it on Touchable Zoology, because um, they are consuming less of the toxic invertebrates that they were getting their toxins from. Um, whether that's because another source of prey has become more abundant, or whether there's a general decline in the sort of arthropods they were relying on is not entirely clear. But um, Is this um, evolved in, like, the toxicity it do just wondering how much of a connection there is with that with diet so are there other small animals that live mostly on yeah arthropods um that also become toxic or is this more Um, an urine thing like are there any small lizards that become toxic have evolved toxicity because of this there aren't any uh poisonous uh like lizards there's a couple of snakes that are uh poisonous and here uh, the caveat on <laughs> you're, you're poisonous if 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 i pick up a poisonous animal and bite it then i get damaged you're venomous if the animal bites me and injects me with venom so i'm talking about things that are poisonous yeah and um there's a couple of snakes that are and they get their toxins from invertebrate prey they consume i think i think that's right i'm thinking of various of the mud snakes that are properly poisonous and i also remember hearing that some of those poisonous birds like the patuis of new guinea i think i remember reading that their toxicity comes from invertebrate prey so i don't know um without i'm not you know without googling it i'm i'm thinking that at least some uh smaller poisonous animals do sequester their toxins from things they eat oh of course it's widespread in invertebrates um many many toxic invertebrates famously Mm. like monarch butterflies and stuff their caterpillars get the toxins from toxic plants and then sequester into their own tissues so so it it would seem that it's like a really widespread thing uh in the animal world yeah i don't know why i find this kind of sort of fascinating i mean i guess it's something about um me erroneously assigning intention to um evolution but it almost feels like the toxicity of your diet causes you to be toxic right Mm. it's like Mm. it's almost backwards it's not like it'd be good if you were toxic so you go and find toxic things to or processes to make you toxic it's almost like well it's so easy to be toxic just sequester what you're eating you know um that it's almost a byproduct it seems but obviously it's yeah. useful but it, it feels like um yeah and it starts in plants and presumably a lot of the insects and things the the frogs are eating are eating toxic plants the toxins are coming up through the trophic levels right yeah that how it works i guess so it must. I mean, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're know. it just feels like an interesting sort of like we've got toxic animals because plants defended themselves with toxins. Yeah. I wonder where the plants got it. 
Uh, I was I was going to say we're veering very easily into uh, issues that are not you know outside our remit because it's um, yeah physiology and metabolism and all that kind of stuff is very difficult. But um, um, yeah, you'd, you'd like if if toxins can be evolved and we know they can be, you know, we you think of all the complex molecules that have been evolved as venoms, then and there are toxins in skin that are, that are you know various kinds of toxins have been evolved then why is that not good enough for everyone why do some of you animals have to go and like no i'm not going to do that i'm not going to like evolve my own molecular toxin that i store in my skin i'm going to have to get stuff from the environment so well that's really stupid because so when you're a baby you start out like fresh and untoxic right so then you have to or do they actually have a bit of like um inherited wait a minute they do so because i can remember reading that the tadpoles of toxic toads the tadpoles are toxic before they've eaten stuff so some of it is conveyed uh, is passed genetically oh very the, the, is it the, genetically there's... or is it epigenetic transfer or like into the into the um actual physical i don't egg. know i uh, well, I, I would assume it's just genetic if it's like the... So what we're asking is whether the toxins are synthesized by the um, the tadpoles or whether they are injected yeah. into the eggs. <laughs> anyway, frogs. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's the... There's, there's, there's a whole world of people that research toxicity, venoms and all that stuff. And I vaguely, I'm vaguely aware of it, but not, you know, obviously as soon as it starts going into chemistry, I lose interest. Not sh not too ashamed to say that. I listen to podcasts where people have got like extensive notes and they can state things precisely. They've got everything written down, they've done the research. And on the one hand, I'm like, I'm kind of embarrassed when I talk about stuff and don't know what I'm talking about. But then I listen to load of pod loads of podcasts where that's clearly the case uh, for those podcasts as well. They're like talking about things. They've got a clue. They're getting everything wrong. So, I am, what the hell? Who cares? We're not getting it wrong. Well, we do get things wrong, but I think a lot of the time we're not getting things wrong. We're saying we don't know. Okay. It's a bit different, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Depends how frustrated you are listening to people who don't know what they're talking about, talking about it without anyone does know telling them what's what. Yeah. Sometimes do you, do you... I find it actually absolutely fine, and other times I find it extremely annoying. I often find it infuriating. I so after I listen to it, I'm like, why did I? Why did I do that? I just made myself angry. And then I listen to another episode, <laughs> just to, as I hate listen. I need need to get myself angry. Um. Anyway, frogs. So, right. I think this is really cool. Anatomy of frogs. I think that because of the general thinking on like the tree of life that people even an edge and uh, even someone who's like you know not um not a zoology expert or whatever has got a very rough concept of the tree of life so for vertebrates there's fishy things and they begat amphibian -y type things and from those reptiles and from those birds and mammals right i think that's wide widely known and for that reason people think that anything in like 
associated with animals like frogs is well those are sort of really simple animals that are just come away from being fish right that's sort of how things are conveyed in the popular literature and encyclopedias and whatnot and it's mostly really really misleading it's mostly like uh utterly wrong because of course the living members of the amphibian groups are so hilariously ridiculously specialized uh it goes without saying that sicilians are incredibly specialized but frogs are as well and frogs are among the most modified anatomically most specialized of all vertebrates in terms of like the number of modifications that they have relative to what their ancestral state was so i didn't mention salamanders there and that's because salamanders god bless them you know that they're, they're, they're doing loads of interesting things but really, really, really approximately, they have got the the most similar to sort of yeah. like what the ancestral form. They're basic. <laughs> I didn't say that. John said that. Um, got some <laughs> hot. Nothing wrong with that, but they are, aren't they? I mean, they're sort of they look quite like that. Which is a which is a stage of evolution that worked and in continues a, to work to this day. Yes, in a, in overall in overall form, this is definitely true. Although once you start again, once you start looking at the yeah, of complexities, of course, it's not true. And having mentioned salamanders, I have to give honorary mention to Ethan Kosak's upcoming moistly harmless book, which I recently wrote the foreword for. And oh my god, I was just bowled away by his book and what he's done. And um, I'll talk more about it when I actually have a copy. But so think of a salamandry type animal and think of a froggy type animal and then think of like how modified a frog is so obviously the head is proportionally large teeth are lacking in most of them not all of them uh, especially in the lower jaw uh, teeth are generally entirely absent in the lower jaw the body is really short there's a really low number of vertebrae there's like five six seven vertebrae the hips are really really odd just like this giant sort of like v-shaped structure um that have a super mobile joint with the vertebral column if you actually watch when they leap and then the hind limbs obviously ridiculously elongate and if you actually look at a frog's legs you'll see that it's got super long femur super long tibiofibula the, the tibia and the fibula are fused together and then there's parts of the ankle that are super elongate creating a, a, a separate segment that's like nearly as long as the tibiofibula is and then there's the super elongate foot now frogs are so diverse that there's all kinds of variations on that theme there are very you know stumpy limbed frogs that are specialized burrowers and there are ones with big paddle feet that are obviously aquatic there's gliding frogs that can jump out of trees and got parachute hands and feet and extra flaps on their legs and stuff it can you know are, are highly specialized gliders but the basic frog body form is probably you know specialized for leaping and um and you know in a, think about it in a frog with a body length because the hind legs are so long the convention is to talk of frogs in terms of svl snout to vent length so body length alone and in a frog with a svl of let's say 10 centimeters that animal can potentially leap like three meters which is one of the greatest bio i've forgotten the word bio one of the greatest thingies. one of the greatest like athletic feats in the vertebrate world you know they can 
I say vertebral world because, of course, you've got stupid things like fleas that can famously leap over St. Paul's Cathedral or the Empire State's building or, <laughs> you know, Yeah, if... scale does weird things. But even <laughs> for, um, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So even compared without... Compared to animals of their size, they are jumping a long way, frogs, yeah. right? Yeah. Compared so it... to a mouse or something. Yeah. So it looks like everything about the frog body plan is super specialized for saltation for this like you know remarkable method of um leaping which then like if it's like and it and it is and it is specialized for leaping and what's the function of leaping when do they do it they don't do it in order to save energy to cover ground they don't do it in order to impress mates it's anti-predator avoidance so the fact that frogs developed this body plan early in their history at least in the earliest jurassic we can say that based on some early jurassic uh, frog fossils then this suggests that unsurprisingly being amphibians being small squishy things frogs from really early in their history were subject to very high um, predation pressure and that in turn shaped their evolution and ultimately them what they were like there is an argument that before they evolved this saltatorial specialized form they were walkers because the earliest known animals on the frog lineage like famously tridobotrachus from the triassic of madagascar they don't look like they were jumping they got short hind limbs without various of the specializations i just mentioned so it might actually be that and their bodies are much longer so it might be that froggy things started out as basically imagine a salamander but without a tail and that's a walker and then straight away it's doing walky things on land it's subjected to massive predation <laughs> so massive die off of this this was a terrible mistake what have we done haha evolution to the rescue boing haha now we're unstoppable and there you go that's the frog story I find the um, lack of tails an interesting thing that happens over and over again, that a lot of animals these days lack tails and we think it's kind of normal, um, you know, uh, that tails aren't, or lack tails, lack a, a substantial tail that's involved in locomotion in a really um, strong way, I would say, because obviously lots and lots of mammals have tails, but they're not connected to the hind limbs in the same way they are in the ancestral state right up until, um, yeah. Um, Mm. and it's happened in it's happened in mammals and it's happened in birds and it's happened in frogs um and it actually requires a huge amount of rearranging the back the hind limbs and rearranging of muscles to get the power back and you end up with enormous hips and you see this in you know mammals and birds and clearly in frogs you've got this really complex large hip structure right um, I, yeah, I wonder about early frogs walking. What, why did they lose the tail then? Um, you know, mm. what was the selective pressure to lose the tail if they were walking about just like a salamander would? Yeah. Uh, I'm not saying it's wrong. I just, I just wondering what the, what the selective pressure would be because tails are useful for walking. <laughs> I have, but you don't have to evolve these crazy hips. Yeah. I mean, I've been looking recently at hips of, of, of birds and, and mammals and just thinking these are insanely over-engineered in some ways right uh, really substantial huge amount of bone very large um if you just have a tail you don't need any of that <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, we've we've touched on this before when we were talking about dinosaurs. That yeah, repeated reductions of of tail of tails in different dinosaur lineages. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, and it's odd. I mean, it's what a lot of a lot of things that exist in nature. People try and find an adaptive reason for them. And in many cases, I think it's because the animal has them because it inherited it. I mean, uh, again, that's hardly an original idea. But, you know, so your default state as a tetrapod is to start out with a long tail and it's fine and it has a job. But then, yeah, it turns out that you can co-opt the tail into some other, you know, it can become a more specialized grasping or balancing organ or display organ or something. But at the same time, yeah, what you're getting at is it can be, it's not needed at its full ancestral length there's like you're advantaged in some way if you reduce it um yeah for certain types of things and i wonder what it is because otherwise you would expect it to be lost relatively because it looks sounds a bit silly but it looks useless right it's not got any organs in it it's not a leg what's it for yeah right yeah we know what it's for biomechanically in many ways but you would expect it to be lost more often in fact, if it was, um, you know, there's hundreds of millions of years of animals with very long tails, mm. large, substantial tails getting around. Yeah. And well, then a few and... lineages that go and lose them. Yeah. That, and I wonder probably... what the selective pressure on that is. Yeah. At which point does it become more of a um, cost than a benefit? Because obviously, obviously, it's a benefit if you... Are running around in trees and needs to have you know use it to help balance or you that's where your fat is stored or or it's useful that's your anti-predator adaptation you know your prey your predators grab your tail and damage it and it can break off but yeah for some groups um i don't know why they lost them i don't know why um i can't remember if if um if the whole story of frogs and slight deviation here on terminology uh some people think the frogs and toads are different animals no toads are when people first named these animals in europe obviously they applied the name frog to the jumpy moist skinned ones and there were toads to the not so jumpy dried skinned ones then people went all around the world uh, i'm talking about european people <laughs> uh europeans went all around the world and they saw animals that looked like the things that in europe they called frogs and toads and so they called them respectively frogs and toads and it then turned out that the terminology they deployed was completely inappropriate in terms of how the animals were related to each other so for example tree frogs are jumpy and moist skinned but they're actually close relatives of toads so they should be called tree toads if you were to stick with phylogeny which we don't so these days it's a complete chaotic of like just like frog toad frog toad frog toad frog toad that's a frog no it's not it's a toad it's a that's an african clawed frog it's a morpho it's a a morpho name is it does it It leap and yeah yeah, what's its skin like and do those things correlate fairly closely and what what would you call the ancestral ones like the really oldest ones we know from the fossil record we mostly call them frogs so yeah i would say i would say toad is a because if that's sort of the ancestral condition maybe we just call um toads are unusual aren't they in our terminology they're meant yeah. to denote something a bit more special right so so the generally accepted thing among experts is the whole group 
the crown group is called a neura. All the neurons are frogs, all of them. Mm -hmm. So toads are a type of frog. So if yeah. any of you are curious as to the terminology, that's the background to it. But so why the whole, and there's a difference between the crown group and the stem group, because different names of both of them, but let's not worry about that, salientia and various other terms. Um, the, the whole lineage, why they went tailless, before they were doing the saltatorial thing, which apparently they did based on fossils like Tridipotrachus. Another caveat here. <laughs> uh, there's a thing that some paleontologists are called ancestor worship, which is where, so we're hungry for information on the early history of the Anuran lineage. And we find one fossil. We find a Triassic fossil from Madagascar Tridobotrachus, that's a real thing. There's one or two other animals from a, a few other places that are a bit similar to it, but there's, whatever, there's a handful of these things. And so we assume, ha-ha, we found the ancestor. We found what the things were like early in their history. And it's like, wait a minute, you found, I don't know how many specimens of those animals there are. Kazakobotrachus from Poland, I think there's a, there's a handful. Tridobotrachus, I think there's a handful. But our assumption, our primary assumption throughout the whole of history, even up until today, is always that we found an animal that's close to the ancestor, whereas we may actually have found some weirdo deviant that's specialised. Yeah, you found the weirdest one, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I so, don't actually, yeah, I can't actually remember what the could be is. that the ancestral, I mean, the, the, the hypothesis that the ancestral frog was a leaper um, is weakened by this, but it's not ruled out, right? Well, this is why I mentioned the early Jurassic thing, because there's, uh, from the early Jurassic onwards, there's an animal called Procellurus bitis, I think it's called. Um, it's, it's from the US, and that's got leaping adaptations. And so we've generally assumed that from that point onwards, the all members of the Anuran lineage have yeah, are of this leaping sort, but why they sort of evolved a proto-frog body type before that if is, they did if they did yeah is uh is one for the ages it's uh much yeah but uh, yeah that's what i was getting at you know what the loss of tail you expect it to come with a change of locomotion as it did with birds i think yeah um, and um uh, mammals it's less clear but they've got a whole arboreal thing going on there really complicated sort of if you trace mammal lineage through it looks lifestyles get really complicated i don't know just i don't know expert i don't really know what we expect these ancestral animals to have been doing all the time but it's it's certainly not just running around on the ground like a lot of um uh, reptiles essentially were doing for yep. a long time yeah yeah so so there, there there is actually i mean the fact the fact that we've ummed and ahed and flipped and flopped on this issue reflects what's actually happened in the technical literature so there's going all the way back to the i think the 1950s which is i've forgotten when tridobotrachus was first named but um certainly yeah the mid 20th century there's um there's a debate in the literature as to the context of the origin of frogs with most people saying ah they're adapted for saltation and that explains everything and then other people saying wait a minute how does that explain this are you sure they weren't adapted for walking and if that's the case, well, then why this switch to saltation? And then there's a third caveat here, a third thing to consider, which is the metamorphosis that frogs undergo. 
it's like some people have seriously argued that the main selection pressure I have no idea how this works and I can't begin to explain this so don't ask me to but some people have argued that the main selection pressures in frog evolution were on tadpoles and all of the selection was basically forcing the tadpoles to be a certain form and because the way the the body rearranges itself as they change from a tadpole to a frog they can only be a frog they can only like have that form as adults and like i say i know that sounds really arm wavy i don't understand it totally myself but that argument is, is out there it's like the evolution of the tadpole came first and the frog... i believe that as far as it goes you know that there's select tremendous selective pressure on tadpoles of course right um, yeah i don't yeah, I've got to say I'm super skeptical of the idea that that just forces a certain form for the adult. I I can't I can't explain it don't, well. Don't but it, but there's, there's there must be something going on there in view of the fact that tadpoles are asexual. Okay, tadpoles cannot have a sex life because all of the stuff to do with reproduction in anurans, unlike other amphibian groups only develops at metamorphosis and this is why you can't have a pedomorphic frog so far as we know at the moment you can't have like a even if it's a giant very well-grown tadpole it's not a sexual organism so they only develop gonads and all that stuff so far as i understand they only develop at metamorphosis so that is in some way connected to i i, yeah, I, I was trying to work in how that could be related to tail reduction because obviously tail reduction is a part of metamorphosis and I, uh, I i don't know but there's the point is nobody really knows and there's like i say a, a fair a fair amount of um speculation and discussion of this of this issue i find it really interesting um yeah and yeah oh, it's quite an evolutionary puzzle yeah and just just to wrap up really on this i mean um we haven't really discussed you know the the diversity that exists within the group the the phenomenal diversity that exists in their tadpoles the fact there are these like filter feeding specialists uh the presence of beaks keratinous beaks is all over the place in tadpoles so like they're herbivores loads of them like rasping on algae and feeding on water plants and stuff there are sucker mouthed ones that can attach to you know waterfalls and actually live on vertical surfaces there are lots that are quite tolerant of brackish water so there's loads of like coastal um breeding frogs and there's some that can even like jump in the sea and swim around in the sea although not be not for very long um there's a tremendous variation in the breeding biology of frogs i mean every strategy you could think of for a frog type animal everything that you could imagine it seems has has evolved in them so again we're familiar with the system of like producing jelly covered spawn in the water and then the tadpoles either feeding on stuff provided by the by the mother or by stuff in the environment but then there's um animals that uh do ridiculous things like um the skin on their back becomes puffy and the eggs become embedded in the back of the skin and then little flasks form and then the, the and then the tadpoles either pop out of the back as tadpoles or <laughs> stay in the skin until they're frogs and emerge from the back as fully formed froglets. So gross frogs. Why you gotta the be so gross? Suriname toads or <laughs> nightmare baby back toads, as I believe they've been termed by those squamates lot. <laughs> Just kidding, guys. Um and then there's gastric brooding, like frogs that swallow the eggs and keep it in 
so the, there's two Australian ones that are now extinct that kept the developed their eggs and tadpoles in their stomach. And then there's um, vocal brooding ones that keep the babies in the in the vocal sac. And yeah, and then there's the noisiest. Obviously, frogs are highly vocal, loads of mechanisms for noise making and really good hearing and then repeated loss of hearing. This is really weird. There's loads that are still vocal but have got no ears, <laughs> but they can still hear things because you can hear things without ears. They can like use the whole body as a sort of... Yeah, their whole body is an ear, isn't it? It's probably In why some they don't of them, special yeah, ears. That's right. Yeah, absolutely nuts. Yeah. So um, loads of stuff. And then, yeah, specializations for, obviously, there's there's many lineages are scansorial or arboreal. Uh, there's burrowing has evolved multiple times, fully aquatic habits have evolved multiple times, and treetop life and and desert life, frogs in deserts that spend like more than half of the year underground. That must be a fun life. Um, so yeah, anurans, the frogs and toads. There you go. A brief introduction to this uh, remarkable group of animals, which I've written a lot at, a lot on at <laughs> Tetrapodology over the years, and. Every now and again, I've done really ridiculous things. Like I'm going to get through all the toads of the world. I'm going to write about all the toads of the world, multiple lineages. Let's go through all of them. And of course, I get about halfway through. And then I find, this is back in the past when I used to do this sort of thing. I don't do it now. Go into group by group by group by group by group by group by group. I would get to the point where I can't find any images of this animal that I can use. And if and if it's like groups of animals where there's like hundreds of species, it becomes a roadblock if you're the kind of blogger who actually likes using images, as I am. I'm dependent on images. I really dislike people that put stuff online without pictures. And um Yeah, it's like a common problem. Yeah. It's like there's no pictures of these animals. And uh and given that as we as we've said earlier, the fact that lots of these lineages the 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 groups of species nearest the origins of the lineages are obscure tropical weirdos those are the kinds of animals that have got like no online presence or if they have an online presence it's fiercely guarded you know you're not allowed to use the images and stuff so um you need you need to do some expeditions darren i'm doing what i can man um Yes, yeah. you're going out in your front garden all the time. Going out snap, snap, snap. into the wilds of southern England. <laughs> Temperatures can get as low as five degrees C on a cold day. Bit nippy, you'd want a jumper. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Anything else you want to say on frogs just to wrap it up? No, no, I think we're done with frogs. Yeah. yeah. I like frogs, but we've run out of time. We've run out of time. So, yeah, I hope that was interesting. Okay. Um, John Conway is on the internet at website johnconway.art and I'm on Mastodon at john at sauropods win. Yep. Uh, I'm on Twitter at <coughs> you're beaten. It is useless to resist. Don't let yourself be destroyed as Obi-Wan did. There is no escape. <laughs> Don't make me destroy you. You do not Long pause. You do not yet realize your importance. You've only begun to discover your power. Join me and I will complete your training. With our combined strengths, we can end this destructive conflict and bring order to the galaxy. 
Is that an Elon to... Musk tweet? Why'd you have to mention him? I know you love him. Listen to the, here's the accompanying notes. Luke answers by rolling sideways and thrusting his sword at Vader so viciously that he nicks Vader on the shoulder. The black armor sparks and smokes and Vader seems to be hurt, but immediately recovers. Luke backs off along the narrow end of the gantry as Vader comes at him, slashing at the young Jedi with his sword. Luke makes a quick move around the instrument complex attached to the end of the gantry. Vader's sword comes slashing down, cutting the complex loose. It begins to fall, then is caught by the rising wind and blown upward. That did not happen in the final cut. Luke glances at the instrument complex floating away. What? At that instant, Vader's sword comes down across Luke's right forearm. Oh, Luke, you were distracted by a complex floating array, cutting off his hand and sending his sword flying. In great pain, Luke squeezes his forearm under his left armpit and moves back along the gantry to its extreme end. Vader follows the wind subsides. Luke holds on. There's nowhere else to go. Now, if you've ever actually seen the making of stuff, so obviously they did film it on a gantry with a drop below it, and there's just a pile of dirty mattresses <laughs> underneath it for when they did fall. And yeah, I, I absolutely love that scene. I love, there's two bits of that I love. One is where Luke successfully strikes Vader's shoulder and Vader goes <laughs> like that. And then also Vader, that really makes Darth Vader really angry. So he brings down his lightsaber and he cuts through the railing on the side of the gantry. And it's just got this really cool clang sound when that happens, which uh, I like stuff like that. Oh, some sparks do fly, but they don't fly off Vader's shoulder pad. Oh my God, this is the Tetrapods Audio podcast, isn't it? At Tetsu. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Oh. I also blog at tetrabology, tetrabodzology, tetzu.com. And if you're interested in what, I don't know about John, but what I do and want to support me and help me in my research and writings, then consider going to my Patreon, patreon.com forward slash tetzu, where you can see it says it doesn't <laughs> but there's many 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 things you can see there that are not yet out there not yet shared there's, there's like i'm glad that's clear let's wrap this yeah, there's hundreds damn thing hundreds. up stop but bye <laughs>